Hello everyone, welcome to Out of the Dust Season 2, Sacramento State's student-run history podcast. My name is Katie Pugh, and today we'll be talking to Dr. Robert Gross, who teaches at the University of Connecticut, about his book, The Minutemen and Their World. I'm Dr. Robert Gross. And where do you teach? I'm now retired. My last job was at the University of Connecticut, in stores, Connecticut. And before that, I taught at the College of William & Mary, where I was the advisor to Professor Antonio Bly. And before that, I taught at Amherst College. And Dr. Bly, I should mention, now teaches at Sac State. So yes, he is the one who kind of started the symposium, which um, had to be postponed until the fall because of the coronavirus um, outbreak here in Northern California. So, And in the time between canceling the or postponing the symposium to the fall and today, we now have a national emergency. So how is Professor Bly doing? He's in his, what, first or second quarter? He's in his second semester, I think. He just started in the fall, and I think he's doing pretty well. He put the whole symposium together, and I feel bad because it had to be postponed. Right. (laughs) So I was his advisor at William & Mary, and actually I have known him since he was a college senior because I directed the program in which he enrolled and I recruited him or I was on a recruiting trip and he met me and he ended up being a student. So would you like to tell me a little bit about what you were going to talk about at the symposium? I am among other things a historian of the American Revolution and I wrote a book that came out in 1976 at the time of the bicentennial long before you or your viewers or listeners were born. <laughs> I wrote a book about the American Revolution called The Minutemen and Their World. And it came out one year after the Battle of Concord of April 19, 1775. And could you kind of explain what a Minuteman is for those people who might not know? In Massachusetts and in New England, and in many places in England, towns relied for self-defense upon militia companies. And men between 16 and 60 were required to train every year with the militia, going out on drills and learning to march and to fire their weapons. They also had to equip themselves with guns and with ammunition. So that was the militia. At times of emergency, towns would enlist men to respond at a moment's warning and they were called the Minutemen. And as the opposition to British policies grew in the summer of 1774, and people thought, you know, we might end up coming to blows with the king's troops. They set up units recruited from the militia of men who would drill and prepare to respond when the Redcoats were coming. So were most of these Minutemen property owners compared to the militia who might not have been? No, no, it's the other way around. So if you're going to respond in a minute's notice, then you've got to be relatively free to do so. Who's free to do so? Young men <laughs> between, say, about 18 and 24. So they're officers of the men in property, but most of the men in the minute companies were young, which means they're not fighting so much for what they have is what they hope to have. So the militia, the militia is what 
everybody's expected to be in if you're able-bodied. The mini companies are the volunteers for emergencies. There's also a larger thing called the, the alarm list. And this is quite a surprise. In the colonial period, if a community was attacked, then not only was the militia expected to turn out, but even enslaved people would be expected to turn out, as well as free blacks. So they weren't in the militia. And what got you interested in this topic of Minutemen and what they did and all that kind of well, thing? We're going all the way back to the early to mid-1970s, the Vietnam War era. I had no interest in military history. I wanted to stay as far from the military as I could. And that was my sensibility in my early 20s. But what I was interested in, the social lives of common people, of working people, of women, of black people, free and slave, um, of native peoples. I wanted to tell the story of those people's lives from the bottom up, as we called it. I got this idea that I would look at the f most famous battle at the beginning of the American Revolution, the Battle of Lexington and Concord. If I could understand who were the people involved, maybe I could explain how and why Americans were willing to fight against the British. So April 19, 1775, British regulars come out to Concord to seize the weapons that the colonists were storing in case of a war. And at the Old North Bridge in Concord, in the town of Concord, for which Concord, California is named. I didn't in know the, that. <laughs> yes, I thought that was, there is a connection between, you know, so in Concord, Cal, Concord, Massachusetts, the British come out and the war begins with a clash of arms at the Old North Bridge in Concord. I thought to myself, who were actually the men in the Minutemen companies? What brought them to their, what were their lives like before that moment? What happened after? You know, usually when people write national history, they tell you about an event, but it's isolated from everybody's ongoing life. So I wanted to figure out what the lives of people were like before and after and ask, did participation in this battle make a difference in their personal lives and the collective life of their town. I think that's very interesting because I remember in school learning about the Revolutionary War and it was always this like broad overview of the war and it was never really about the specific like men who were fighting. History is boring if it's just the history of events and days. And what I've learned through, especially in college, that you you get past the, the dates and the like the big people involved like George Washington and um, Thomas Jefferson. And it's important to look at like history from the bottom up, as you said. Well, you know, it's funny. Uh, history is interesting if you take Thomas Jefferson and think of him not just as a great white man, but think of him as a human being with all the conflicts and contradictions of anybody you know. So there he is with Sally Hemings enslaved woman who's also burying his children talking about the rights of man. Like people are complicated and it makes history complicated because there's so many factors involved in making decisions and people's personal lives always say it's not coming into it. <laughs> there's a great line that was actually written by Karl Marx in the 1840s 
and he says, people make their own history, but not necessarily under circumstances of their own choosing. What is so interesting about history is if we can figure out what are the circumstances that surround the choices people make, both the ones that they're aware of and the ones they have no idea about, but still constrain them. And I think it connects us to people who lived before when we think about, huh, well, they really couldn't choose or they, or they chose something within a limited window. We can look back and see how they both were constrained and they thought they were doing what they wanted or what um, they had to do. So for your book that you wrote in the 1970s, did you have to go to a lot of archives to research that? I spent a few years um, in Concord, Massachusetts, in the town archives, in Boston, in the state archives, looking at everything from um, records of property holders. I wanted to know, did the rich people serve in the American Revolution as much as the middling or the poor? Who were the leaders of the town? So I looked at the meeting, minutes of town meeting, who got elected, how widely shared was office holding? Did it turn over a lot? or did a few people dominate the town? Was there political conflict? That was particularly interesting because when you think about political conflict, you can imagine that people were just like us. They were used to competition. They thought it was acceptable. People ran for office against one another. But when you looked at 18th century Massachusetts, Massachusetts that wasn't the case at all. They didn't think that competition was a good thing. They thought that consensus and unanimity is what you aimed for. And if there was conflict, it wasn't legitimate, but it was the result of a few people scheming for their own self-interest to gather up the multitude for their own benefit. When there was political conflict, as there would inevitably be among human beings, they couldn't take it easily and say, eh, that's what people do. Instead, they could develop conspiracy theories about other people, kind of like today. I don't know why I'm distinguishing so much today from the past. <laughs> so what was your favorite thing that you learned or favorite or most interesting thing that you learned by going through the archives, either the state archives or the city archives in Concord? Well, I looked at the records of births, marriages, and death. I was interested in how young people formed families, how old they were, men and women on marrying on average, when they had their first children, how big were their families, whether the kids could live nearby or had to move far away because there wasn't enough land for them. And one of the things I found was that starting in the 1720s, going up to the eve of the American Revolution, decade by decade, the percentage of brides who were pregnant at uh, marriage kept increasing. Between 1765 and 1775, one out of every two first births in, uh, in families was conceived out of wedlock. So premarital pregnancy was epidemic. Oh, that's not something I would have thought of during that time period. You probably thought they were more uptight than you are. Yeah, <laughs> that's something I always thought of in the American Revolution. It's like, oh, they're so, they have all these, not rules, but societal implications about what people need to do. So that's well, part of the 
what made it a revolutionary era. Social arrangements that govern coming of age of young people were changing rapidly. If you grew up on a farm and your father had enough land, you would expect that in time after laboring on his land, when you were old enough, he could provide you with a farm and then you could seek out someone to marry and you could reproduce the way of life. But what if he's running out of land? If he divides it up equally among all, all the children, there won't be enough for anybody to have a family on. Maybe you've got to move away. But if you have to move away, how long do you want to stay on your father's farm working for him? The American Revolution, the question was, are you going to stick around where the land is declining? It's been farmed for 100, 125 years by your ancestors. You're going to have to move away to start a, a homestead of your own. And if you're going to do that, shouldn't you leave sooner rather than later? Well, what if your father says, no, you can't go. I'm not giving you anything. And by the way, you can't marry without my approval. So the premarital pregnancies began to increase as young people drifted into relationships in which whether they planned it or not, they were taking control of their own lives because if the girl was pregnant, then they could marry and then they get set up. And that was tied then to a sense that young people had to be independent, that they needed to make choices without their fathers making them for them. And so a sense of generational rebellion was increasing at the very same time as the colonists were increasing their discontent with the mother country and seeking to break away on their own. So there's a convergence between the colonies breaking away and young people breaking away. Except young people weren't breaking away to do something new. They wanted to do something old. They wanted to have the same way of life as the way of life. Your least favorite part of going through all those archives, or were they difficult? Were the papers difficult to go through? Or was there something that was so hard? I, to know what property people owned and study the relationship between wealth and political participation, I had to create databases of all the tax lists listing every individual with the property holdings. And they taxed in those days all your livestock, not just horses and cows and oxen and pigs and sheep, but they would say, how many three-year-olds and two-year-olds and one-year-old livestock? And then you had to put down how much acreage they had, how much uh, tillage land for corn and, and grain crops, and then how much acreage and uh, hay, whether fresh meadow hay or cultivated hay and pasture and woodlands. And I had a, this is before you could do everything with a desktop computer. Uh, we had by hand to input on little coding sheets all this information in little boxes. And then they made, I hired somebody to make punch cards. And I'd take the punch cards to the computer center at the Worcester Polytechnic Institute and at Harvard. I lived nearby each place. And then I'd get these huge printouts, which were too big to fold up. So you had to buy special um, notebooks with, you know, put these big wide sheets inside of them. And then you could figure out what you were doing. So that was tedious 
and I hired a research assistant. When my book came out, she was living in California and I was in Massachusetts. She sent me a telegram. That's an email sent, not by email, but by wire. And the telegram said, congratulations for finishing the history of the pigs in Concord. So you wrote, the book came out around the time of the bicentennial. Right, 1976. Was, yes. Was there a big, like, revolutionary war fever during that time? Or how did oh, that? Oh, yeah. That was, that's when all the tall ships came from England to Boston. And that was, of course, um, that's when Jerry Ford was now president. And he came out to Concord for a big bicentennial celebration, only to be greeted by the people, um, it was known as the American People's Bicentennial Committee, made up of um, young people still protesting the Vietnam War. So they all gathered and spent all night at the National Historic Park in Concord. And uh, I lived in Concord at the time, and I remember walking out there, and uh, President Ford was gonna be on one side of the river, and the protesters were on the other, and I remember at 1 or 2 a.m. when I walked out there, the haze of marijuana was as thick as the smell of cannon smoke in April 1970, 75. That sounds very, like a very strange dichotomy between, well, there are people protesting another war while celebrating one from 200 yes, years ago. Well, that's, that's true. So I expect that your former governor, Jerry Brown, could explain it. Yeah, he probably could. <laughs> you always interested in the Revolutionary War even before you became a historian or? It was, I didn't think I would write about the American Revolution. I was intending to write a, write a dissertation in a book about Henry David Thoreau and Trent and Walden and how it was that Thoreau decided to go live by the shores of the pond. But to take the measure of the world of the 19th century, I thought I would look back at the revolution. But then I got into that as the bicentennial approached. I thought, hey, I can write a quickie book for the bicentennial. I'd been a journalist for Newsweek. You know, the idea of writing for a broad audience and doing a quickie book appealed to me. Actually, the book was fairly quick. It took about two years to between the contract and when it was published. In the course of doing it, I kind of fell in love with the subject. And mainly, I think, if you're going to write anything good, you've got to have a sense of excitement about the people you're writing about. Even if you hate them, you've got to be excited about under, trying to understand them and get into their head. important to take a history of everyone's perspective, not just the people we tend to learn about in elementary school. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I once saw, never got to do it. I always dreamed that I would teach a course in American history over two semesters, in which we would start in the present, and we would move backwards in time. Uh, and each time we started, we would ask if the people a generation before could have imagined the world that we were in. Could the people today, you know, if you went back to the Vietnam War era, did anybody imagine the U.S. today? If you went back to World War II, could anybody have imagined America of the 1960s? and keep going back and back and back. And tell you yeah. what, one of the things it would bring out is that people like to imagine that people in the past are just like them. They just wore different clothes or ate different food, but they're basically the same. But if you did it like this, you'd constantly have to come to terms with, huh, 
maybe we're not all basically the same. Maybe, you know, it's like looking at the people who settled New England. If they had known that they were going to lead up to us, New England, if they had known that they were going to lead up to us, would they have turned those ships around and gone right back? I mean, I get that a lot when I people find out I study history. They always say, well, uh, people in the, you know, 1920s were the same, weren't they? And it's like, well, no, <laughs> they were not the same. They had different ideals and different ways of looking at things. And it's the same for the Revolutionary War as well. Well, I think the answer is always yes, but. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So what was your favorite part of teaching? Making connections with the students I taught and... Um, you know, when I did so, you know, they would get excited about the things that I thought were interesting, or I would find they were interesting through their reaction. Seminars, especially. Um, I always strive to find a way to ask a question about the reading that I could open it up and people, and so that instead of thinking, we read this book and what's the argument? And this person did all the work and our job is to learn what that person did. I always aim to say, okay, now let's take it all apart. If I were an auto mechanic, the job would be to take the engine of a car, disassemble it, leave all the pieces on the table and say, can we put it back together and make it look different from what it already was? So when I, when I taught, it was always, you know, constantly kept myself on my toes. So we would, I could, always think a question that the students hadn't thought of but and they would do the same to me and our minds would expand and at the end of an hour or two hours we'd all be someplace different from when we entered i like that i think it's good to have a professor or any teacher that kind of looks at history or learning the least favorite part of teaching or did you well no i i i have to say from beginning to end i taught for over 40 years I, I love I could still be doing it, but I retired so I could get some writing done. <laughs> so, um, but it was, uh, you know, you know you, there are always ups and downs, but, you know, you're always, you're getting older and the students are typically always the same age. Ah. And so, you know, the challenge is to keep yourself fresh without pretending that somehow you're their contemporaries. Um, do you find that people still read your book about the Minutemen? Yeah. So the book came out in 76. We did a 25th anniversary edition, 2001. It's still in print. You can buy copies of it on Amazon, sadly, for a nickel or a dime. You'll pay more for shipping than you will for the old used copy. But uh, it's still in print. And when I give talks, sometimes they'll sell copies. And people like this are often to school teachers, people will still line up for me to sign it um, and react as if the book came out just last year. Well, I know the University Library at Sacramento State still has two copies of your book. Well, good. Good. <laughs> you need to take a copy out. So, so you check. So you need to take it and see if they're all marked up. I should. <laughs> and, and, and did students deface the book and argue with one another on, on the pages? <laughs> This is no good. Do you have other areas of history that you're interested in besides the revolution or? Well, yeah, so I just, I just finished a book, which, so the first one's called The Minutemen in Their World. The sequel is called The Transcendentalists in Their World. And it's a study of 
Concord, Massachusetts again, and how it became the home of transcendentalism of, and, of, and of American individualism. Ralph Waldo Emerson lived here, and Thoreau, Henry David Thoreau, well, went to live by the shores of Walden Pond here. And if there are any books that are sort of classic American literature, it's Henry Thoreau's Walden. So I was always interested in where did that come from? How did the Puritans and the Minutemen, who were much more communal and collective in their orientation to life, how did they give rise in the same town to the spokesman for American individualists? Or in the simplest terms, how did we go from a world that thought about community to a world that thought about individualism? Or maybe you could say, how do we go from Concord, Mass to Concord, California? So I have written a study of what were the changes in the town that made for a loosening of social controls, a weakening of, idea of interdependence, and a release of individuals to act far more on their own. And then that study connects to the development of ideas on the part of Emerson and Thoreau and others that really said, we don't need organized religion in the form of, of church doctrine and theology or, or ritual or strict admissions or moral control. The religion that we want is the notion that there's a spirit of God that's within all of us. And that spirit is both common to everyone but shapes the unique part of yourself. And that's that individual expression. And that faith was linked to convictions of democracy and equality, that every individual didn't need to be controlled by the community, that every person born was something new under the sun. And it was the task of social institutions to cultivate that germ within every person of individual genius. Impossibility. So the point of the book is to show you how that became the American faith, that every one of us is something new under the sun. Oh, that's always interesting. So before I end, is there anything else you would like to add? No, I think it's great, great questions and it sounds like you're doing pretty well in that history major. Thank you again for talking to me. I'm sorry that you couldn't come out here for the symposium. Well, I will probably be out next fall. I might have to come to the symposium to meet you in person. That would be lovely. Thank you for listening to this episode of Out of the Dust. Stay tuned for our next episodes in which Shelby and I talk to history faculty about their work in the archives. And thank you again to Dr. Gross.